Father, we do thank you for this time together. I thank you for this group. I thank you for the growth that you've given them in Christ. I pray that you're continuing to move in them by your Spirit to draw them closer to Jesus, to um, create in them not just knowledge, but a, a heartfelt zeal to love Him, to prize Him, to make Him known among uh, our community and the world around us. I pray that as we go through this next section in Acts, that you would set for us a vision of how we are to relate to one another and how we relate to the world around us, and by doing so, display the beauties of Jesus and that He's worth it um, more than our rights, more than our um, entitlements that we feel that we are owed, but that He is worth sacrificing all so that the gospel would flourish among a fallen humanity. We thank you for this mission that you've given us. We pray that we would be faithful to it and that you would help us by your Spirit and the ministry of your Word. And we pray that that happens a little bit more this morning. In Christ's name, amen. We're looking at Acts 15, starting in verse 22. Starting in verse 22. And last time, we had worked through uh, the controversy in Jerusalem. Some men had gone to Antioch, caused a bunch of problems, telling the uh, Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised and follow the law in order to be saved. And that caused uh, in, uh, no little dispute. Is that the way Luke says it? Uh, and so they had a delegation go from Antioch to Jerusalem. There was a council that was held. The elders of the Jerusalem church and the apostles met, heard testimony, had we don't know how long that went. I mean, it could have been weeks or whatever that they discussed this, but ultimately came to a solution. James, uh, who was the, the lead elder there, uh, proposed a solution that, um, in effect, um, did not jeopardize the Gentile mission by requiring them to be circumcised and to follow the law, but called on them to be kind to their non, the non-believing Jews in the area and the Jewish Christians who, who held to the law uh, by, uh, by following uh, some, I don't know, requirements. This is what they call it in the letter. So we'll use that word. The, the, uh, the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem have to communicate this then, their decision on how to resolve this law-free gospel that Paul was converting Gentiles under, how to, how, to, how to resolve that controversy, they communicate the solution, and they choose to do it by way of letter. Uh, it helps to put things in writing, and so that's what they did. And so let's look at verse 22 and see how this, how this works out. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles at Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. <coughs> Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and, Saul, and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. That's the letter. First impressions of the letter. What do you think? In, in greeting, in substance, in conclusion. Short and sweet. It is short and sweet. That is true. Very short and sweet. Um, so they send these two delegates. We'll talk about more about the letter in a second. It's very interesting how this is written. Uh, of, the, of the two Jerusalem delegates, who are they? What does it say? The names are? Justice and Silas. Justice. Some some translations have justice. Others have mine has Ju ESV has Judas, uh, Barsabas, uh, and the other is, is, is Silas, also known by his Greek name Silvanus. Silas is kind of a, a short term, like Rick for Richard or whatever. I don't know. Uh, so you have two guys, Judas. Every time I see the word Judas, it makes me nervous. But this is a different guy. Uh, the other guy is long gone by now. Um, his name, we, this is the only time we really see him. We know nothing of this guy, Judas. <clears throat> we know that his name means Sabbath-born, so that may give you a little hint as to his position on the Jewish-Christian-Gentile-Christian thing. He may be more conservative in that relationship. Um, but uh, Silvanus, Silas, is a Greek name, and so scholars tend to think that he is more of a Hellenistic Christian which, you know, kind of shows both sides of that debate. And here they are with this letter of reconciliation on the issue. Um, Silas is, is a shortened form of the Greek name, uh, Silvanus. And, it's, and it's, he later, we see, that he served as Paul's amanuensis. That's a big fancy word, isn't it? You know what that means? What's amanuensis? Manu means hand, right? And, uh, secretary. One secretary. One who writes. It literally means a slave with a duty to be a secretary. <laughs> but that's not really what is going on. It's usually whenever apostles would, uh, for example, Peter, when he's writing a letter, he would dictate it. And somebody would write it down for him. Paul talks about having men write down and makes a big note of it whenever he says, See, I've written this with my own hand, because that's not normally what happened. Someone else would write it down for them. It's a manuensis. So uh, Silas uh, is, is later shown to be uh, uh, Peter's uh, secretary. He certainly seems to be the Silvanus that Paul mentions as a co-worker in his Corinthian and Thessalonian letters. And you see that in 2 Corinthians 1.19, 1 Thessalonians, the first verses in both of those letters. Those are two churches that are founded on Paul's next missionary journey that he takes Silas with him. It's interesting here. Barnabas... And Silas, where, where are these guys from? Do you remember where Barnabas came from? Original church that he was at, Barnabas. I'll give 30 seconds of quiet just for the awkwardness. <laughs> Barnabas was from, uh, remember he was, the, he was called the son of encouragement by whom? Oh my goodness. There will be a quiz at the end of the semester. Multiple choice. Multiple guess. 
The apostles, the apostles, the apostles. He came from uh, the church in Jerusalem. Silas is sent from the church in Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting that Paul chooses or gets guys to go with him who are from the church in Jerusalem? It kind of gives this, you know, he gets sent out by Antioch, but the personnel he has are from Jerusalem. So you have this, again, the Jerusalem church is not, uh, is not uh, uh, withdrawn from the Gentile mission. In fact, they're, they're providing workers for Paul to, to take with him on these missions. Uh, it, it's, a, it's not only their verbal approval, but they're actively approving the Gentile mission. What do you see... Um, what do you see happening here in this letter? Um, Isn't it the same thing that they were discussing, like how to, to be pure and uh, with holiness and stuff that we had just talked about last week? Yeah, it's, it's the same stuff that James had recommended to them. Do you remember where he pulled that from? We talked about that last week. What were the requirements? that the, He gave four requirements. And the four requirements we saw last week were the same that were in, Le in Levitical law, 1718, for um, foreigners who were living in Israel to have fellowship with the Jews there. They wouldn't have to convert to Judaism, but in order to, to be in country, they'd have to do those four things. And that's the same idea that James proposed. Not that it's a basis for salvation, because that's the issue. Do I have to be circumcised? Do I have to follow the Torah to be saved? The Jerusalem Council said, no, the gospel is faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, to the glory of God alone. I mean, it was, it was total reformation they had in Jerusalem. It's amazing. So you have this clear expression of we're saved by faith in Jesus, not by following the law, not by, um, not by uh, external rituals. It's a matter of the heart. It's what the Holy Spirit does in the heart. And yet... They put on these four requirements, they call them. Um, some translations would have necessary things. Why would they do that? To bridge the gap. It's kind of a compromise between the Jews and the Gentiles so that they can get along. Why? Because we're one body. We're unity. Right? But I mean, why would a Gentile take on a good stake? You know, not eating a good steak. Jesus. <laughs> Always a good answer in Sunday school. The correct answer, but why? Because of his character. His character. In what way? <laughs> let's, let's, I'm going to pull this out. It kills me. Because of what? His, like, his own purity or holiness. His purity and holiness. And, 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 and what else? What, what is going on? Not to offend the Jewish brothers. This is a basis of table fellowship, right? This is a basis for them to be able to actually have not just their Jewish brothers, but if they're in towns where everywhere where Moses is preached, as James says, um, they've got non-believing Jews in the town who are saying, you're claiming a Jewish Messiah and yet you live like a Gentile. What's going on there? That's an obstacle to the gospel, right? So for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of unity among the brethren, they, incidentally, are they commanding this? Do you see any word of command in here? 
That's an encouragement, right? Is that a command? I, we as apostles and elders of the Mother Church command you here with and forth with and to unto for everything, do this, and there's no, just, you know, there's no, there's no bridging the, the, the order we've given. It's come down. Is there a command here? It's a requirement. It's a, it's a necessary thing. But it's not a basis for salvation, right? It's clear, clear on that. This is something that they're encouraging them to do. The language is not is very conciliatory. It's very gentle language. It's not a command. It's not. They're not demanding that they do this. It's a. It's a. We we just re we require this of you to for, for table fellowship. Think of it. Think of it this way. Think of doing this in order to have um, table fellowship with with your Jewish friends and brothers. Um, in the intro of the letter, we'll, we'll go through it this way. In the intro of the letter, you see a typical Greco-Roman salutation. It's from senders, then it points to the recipients, followed by a customary greeting, which says, greetings. You introduce who it's from, you tell who it's to, and you say greetings. And this is the way that Greco-Roman letters were written from Jews. Um, James starts his epistle this way. Who it's from, who it's to, greetings. And yet these are from Jews. Why would they do this? Who are they sending it to? Who are they sending it to? Who are they sending it to? Gentile believers Gen in Antioch. Gentile believers in Antioch who are very much Greek, right? They're, this is the way they communicate. This is familiar to them. This is part of their culture, their style, their, um, their, their way of communication. So they, they make every effort to communicate clearly and in the style of their Greek-speaking brothers and sisters in Antioch. What does this letter say? Incidentally, it's a very formal letter. It's a very brief and formal letter. In fact, verses 24 through 26 is one sentence. Tightly compacted Greek typical Hellenistic sentence. Very Greek in its construction here. And they're doing it for communication to, to, to um, accommodate their culture. What does this say about the Judaizers, the fun party here? What, what, do, they, what do they tell these people about these guys that came to them? They came from us, but we didn't order them. We didn't instruct them as well. Yeah, we didn't order them. They they may have come from us, but they aren't speaking for us. Until that statement is read by Antioch, what's the impression? This this is ordered. This is mm -hmm. this is the way we think of you in in the Jerusalem Church, right? This is an official thing. Let that sink in. <coughs> If I go out into the community and I am acting and speaking a certain way, I am reflecting on the church at Sylvania. Right? Until there's a public rebuke, a public display of, I ain't us. We didn't send this guy. This isn't, this isn't how we are. Let that sink in. We never sin in isolation. We never offend in isolation. 
That's very instructive, I think. Um, they don't represent us officially. And the letter, in fact, shows some frustration that the church at Jerusalem has with the, with the fun party, doesn't it? These guys, they, they say that they have troubled you in your minds. The language there, the Greek there, actually can be translated, they have plundered you. Like a town gets plundered. It's a military term. They've plundered you. Uh, they tear it down is another way to say it. Uh, it. It's a military metaphor used to describe the looting of a town. They're not happy with these guys. What these guys have done reflects on them. And they're members at the Jerusalem church. We're never given any kind of indication that there's a formal church discipline thing that went on with these guys. But good grief, this is pretty, pretty telling, the way that they describe members of their own body who have gone out and done this thing. Typically, you would think they would want to circle the wagons around their own, right? Oh, that's just the way they are. They're just that way. They're a little, they're a little zealous, you know. They don't accommodate that at all. They speak to it exactly how it is and say, they don't represent us. <clears throat> how, in contrast, do they describe Paul and Barnabas? What do you see? Beloved. Beloved. Dear friend, some translations would say. They've risked their lives. What's the, what's the implication there in contrasting to the fun party? You guys do represent us. <laughs> well, they do represent us. Uh, they, they, they are in, in, in line with where we are on this. They've risked their lives for the sake of the gospel as opposed to the fun party, which is they got nothing better to do than sit around and think of ways to cause trouble among the Gentiles. It's for no more. Yeah. They're, they're, they're kind of sitting on the laurels as it relates to the gospel and causing problems among the fruit of another's labor. There's a contrast made. Uh, then they introduce Judas and Silas as representing them. These are the guys that are our emissaries. These are the guys that are our representatives. Um, and then we finally get to the meat of the letter in verse 28. What's the emphasis here? What's the emphasis? What's the emphasis of the letter? Yeah, yeah, the, the meat of the letter. They don't want to add anything to Scripture to, you know, you, you must do this to be saved. You know, repent and believe, that's it. Right. Their whole goal is not to burden the Gentiles. Right. And now what they say? We don't want to burden you. Um, what do you think the... Where are they pulling this from? By what authority are they not <laughs> burdening the Gentiles? What do they say? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Why would they bring in the Holy Spirit on this? Is that possible? Can they do that? We didn't see any outward expressions. How can they say the Holy Spirit wanted them to do this? God's been offended by the added requirement. Okay. The gospel hasn't been represented properly in what those 
Right. So the, the gospel has not been properly represented by these guys. Um, it, the Holy Spirit was instrumental in including Gentiles. Right? And now they're recognizing, the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem are recognizing the Holy Spirit was instrumental in giving them wisdom and how to set parameters for how they're to be included. Not only is the initial part done by the Holy Spirit, but the ongoing ministry to the Gentiles and the ongoing uh, sanctification among the churches in dealing with different cultures and different people and how we relate to one another, even though we come from different ethnicities and backgrounds and all that kind of stuff, that also is a gift of, a work of the Holy Spirit. And you see them uh, recognizing that and pointing, pointing them to it. Just as the Holy Spirit was instrumental in including the Gentiles through the gospel, the Holy Spirit was instrumental in giving wisdom for resolution on this issue, the conditions for their inclusions. And so, verse 29 lists the four provisions just as they were proposed by James, but there's one slight variation. James had spoken of food polluted by idols. But as what often happens in writing, we get a little bit more precise in the way we describe that. The apostles and the elders describe it as food sacrificed to idols. It's more precise. Two of these decrees, just a little history, two of these decrees would appear again in the letters to the churches in Revelation. We see this again in chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation. Tertullian confirms that the churches in North Africa were abstaining from blood and illicit marriages in the second century. That was some of their uh, stated requirements. In the fourth century, the Syrian church forbade sexual immorality, the consumption of blood, and strangled meat. So even on into the fourth century, the apostolic decrees at this time are being followed. Uh, some have argued that Paul ignores them. He never, he never, because in Galatians when he recounts this situation, he says, nothing was added to my gospel. So the, the, some of the crit critics of Paul have said, he completely ignored the apostles. He's on his own. He's rogue. But if you read 1 Corinthians, and I'll just say it like that, if you read 1 Corinthians, Paul seems to deal with two of them. Sexual immorality, chapters 5 through 7, we see that whole sordid issue being dealt with by Paul. And then again, uh, he, uh, he also deals with food sacrificed to idols. There's that whole passage on don't offend your brother. If you know at his house that he's offended by food uh, sacrificed to idols or eating that food, don't do it. There's a, there's a accommodation for the weaker brother stuff, and it's in the context of one of those decrees. The, the decrees aren't a basis for salvation, but for fellowship. They're a kindness to brothers of different cultures. The spirit that's called for there is, I lay down my rights so that my brother is not offended. And my brother lays down his rights as a kindness to me in the same way. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. And again in Ephesians, he begins that whole section on how we relate to one another in, 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 in marriage, with children, with, with working. He starts the whole thing off by saying, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ in Ephesians 5.21. 
That's the whole mindset here. It's a kindness that's being done. It's not, it, it, it's even though you're free not to, to, to be under the law, think of the um, obstacles that you place to fellowship with those from different cultures or different persuasions. Or, it's, not a, it's not saying compromise on a core issue of the gospel. It's saying accommodate where we can find agreement and it's not a primary thing. Does that make sense? I think this is a great uh, implication in missions work. Can you think of some missionaries in history who may have made some accommodations culturally um, in order that they not give offense to those with whom they were trying to win? Paul. Paul. That's kind of a classic example, yeah. Way to go with the authoritative one. Very good. Jesus. Always, yes. Yeah, he, he kind of accommodated. Taking off the glory of heaven to become lowly man is kind of an accommodation. Yeah, that's probably pretty much we want to stop there. Is that what you're saying? Past the second century, let's say. Can you think of any? No. What are you doing to me? You're killing me. Um, can you think of anybody? Hudson Taylor. In what way? He went, well, he went to China. He went to China, yeah. China. Yeah, I don't know too much. I mean, I don't really like a biography, but I assume that you go to China and their culture is completely... Night and day. Night and day. Uh, so he, had to, he used to how they greet each other, how they eat. And he couldn't, I don't, like, he didn't force his Western perspective on that. He accepted. Didn't require a chair at mealtime, you know. The tables are on the ground. I know I got a bad hip as a Westerner, but I'm going to do it anyway. He shaved his head, had a little ponytail thing going on. But that was a little uh, crazy when he went back to uh, the West for funding. Shows up in their churches with a... Anyway. Just, that's a, that's a silly... I mean, those are silly things, but at the time, that's a big thing. You don't look like an Englishman anymore. What are you doing? And there are others. When we see this, somebody said Jim Elliott. There are others that, uh, that, have, that have taken this approach of where can I lay down my cultural expectations for the sake of being all things to all men that I may win some? Yeah? I have a question. Maybe I'm the only one this bothers. But, okay, so the, like the food sacrifice to idols from blood and things that are strangled. And then it throws in sexual immorality, which seems like that's a pretty big moral issue compared to other places where Paul's like it's a matter of conscience on the food sacrifice to idols. Why? I mean, I, am I the only one that's just like this list? It seems weird. Well, um, I know I know the Leviticus thing. Yeah. But, but it, I know all of these things were associated with idol worship. Right. But it, is, it, is it because of that? that well, the, the sexual ethic of the Gentiles at the time and today is, is, uh, was radically different from that of the Jews. Um, in this, initially, they were talking about 
uh, the different types of relationships that you could get into. You know, you ain't to marry your sister. You ain't to marry your brother's wife, uh, your husband's, your father, not your husband's wife. Your, your, well, you get that too. Um, your, 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 your father's wife and all those kind of Levitical relationships that are, that are considered to be illicit. That's what they initially were saying. This is, we don't do this. The undercurrent of that in all of this, I mean, nobody is talking about the Ten Commandments. Everybody understands. That's assumed. That was assumed. It was more like these, those kind of relationships right. where it might offend your brother. Exactly. Or your stepmother. Yes. Like yeah. Well, I mean, you think of it back then, they, it was like a big shell game yeah. a lot of times with the genetic line. So, whatever. Okay. But that's not, but that gets sorted out through this. In, in Western culture, we now see that as not appropriate in in most parts of the country uh you know in america we see that as not appropriate i'm not naming states that begin with a at all um so but but we see that as being as being not appropriate oh i know there are but it's okay um it did over time it did get to where uh, these took on a character that was more moral, like you don't have anything to do with idols, right? It, meat, strangled or otherwise, we, we don't want to have anything to associate with idols. From the Western, from the Gentile world, it was assumed to be that. And the sexual morality also included the basic sexual ethic of the Bible, which is one man, one woman, marriage. Um, so that was also put in, you know, uh, that was an understood thing that was brought out again and again in, in Western culture through the, through the centuries. But it began as just the ritual part of it, how, how the Jews interpreted these things, how the Jews were, were doing these things culturally and ceremonially. But yes, it did, it, the undergirding of all that is the Ten Commandments. Why do we even not mess with idols? Well, because there's no other God before me. Why do we worry about our sexual ethics? Well, don't commit adultery. You know, those are all assumed under the, they undergird all of this. Um, all right. I forgot where I was going. That's okay. Let's go on to verse 30. That might be good. So, uh, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the leather. The letter, the leather. They delivered the letter. It may have been on leather. I don't know. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. What strikes you about that section? Just real initial impressions. What stands out to you? A sense of relief. A sense of relief? Everybody's just in harmony now. Every, it seems to be very harmonious. That's the effect of the letter, which is an accommodation both from the Jews and a request for accommodation from the Greeks, there's harmony in the church, right? What's missing in your translations? It, verse 34. Do you find that weird? No. Why would they not put verse 34 in there? 
Because it appears in some manuscripts, but not others. <laughs> Very good. He read the textual note. <laughs> no, I didn't. That should not be... Okay, Jeffrey just knows these things from Christian. That's why verses are missing. <laughs> yes. And here's the issue on this. We know that this was added. 34. We know that this is added. How do we know that? Because we have old manuscripts, and combining them all together, we see at later in time, we, 34 pops up in the Western, in the Western translation, or in the Western uh, text. So, the thought is, somebody had a problem with the fact that verse 33 says, Judas and Silas leave, and then later Paul chooses Silas to go with him on the next journey. How did Silas get there? What's going on? We have a conflict. We can't do this. And so somebody had to fix the Bible. <laughs> and so they put in 34, which says, but Silas remained. Yeah. Don't fix the Bible. It's not necessary. This is completely able to be harmonized because Luke starts the next section with, after many days, which is his typical understatement of a length of time passed and, and we're starting a new narrative. In that time, Silas could have left for Jerusalem and come back to visit to see how they're doing. It's completely possible. It's not a stretch. Everybody wants to fix the Bible. Stop it. Not you, but I'm just, it irritates me. All right, what's the response of the church at Antioch? What's the response? They rejoice. The kindness by the church at Jerusalem was refreshing to them. The encouragement, uh, that encouragement from the letter had hands and feet in Judas and Silas. And these are the real representatives of the church at Jerusalem. And their encouragement results in joy and a strengthening in the gospel. How do they send them off? In peace. In peace. So you have a letter from Jews that's in Greek style. And Greeks sending off Jews back to Jerusalem in Shalom. You see what's going on? They're both accommodating and trying to relate to one another based on the other's culture. It's not a core issue. It's a kindness. It's thinking of the other greater than yourself. I'm going to try to make it significant to them by sending them out in peace, in shalom. Um, all right. Luke ends the Jerusalem conference anticipating the next journey for Paul by stating that Antioch had many others who were also teaching and preaching. The, the idea here is Paul is, Luke is anticipating talking about Paul's next journey and he wants to make the point Paul's not leaving them in a, in a vacuum. There are others who are teaching and preaching who are capable of doing what he and Barnabas are doing there. Um, so that's how he leaves it. Let's look at verse 36. Verse 36, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. 
and he went through Syria and Cilicia, or Cilicia, strengthening the churches. What are we to make of this? Sometime later, it's typical for Luke to begin a new section of the narrative like this. And again, we're, we're starting the second missionary journey. We'll begin in chapter 16 with that venture. But what are we to make of this? A sharp dispute. You've got one of the greatest evidences of harmony in the church, of a reconciliation of a very thorny, difficult issue about how the gospel relates to Gentile culture. And they break up over this? Isn't there something in one of Paul's later letters when he's uh, near his deathbed that he says he uh, regrets this and wants to apologize or whatnot? Is that this incident? Um, there is some, there, and, and we'll get to it in a minute, there's some, some indication that he reconciles with Mark okay. over this. You're right. Okay. Philemon. In fact, I'd encourage all of you, read Philemon in the context of this issue. The whole book is Paul's, don't do what I did. My life is like the Titanic here. Don't do what I did. You know, I'm an example of what not to do. Because Philemon is a, a total gush to a brother about how to reconcile two brothers together. And, and, it's, and he ends with, Mark, my fellow worker, greets you. That's kind of a, remember what happened here? That, that wasn't a silent thing. Again, when we sin, everybody's involved. Everybody knows it. And everybody knew this. Paul and Barnabas. If disputes can happen between Paul and Barnabas, what are we to do? You know, I mean, that's, that's the implication here. The whole church gets rocked by the separation of these two guys. They have no small dispute, a sharp dispute. What are we to make of that? The conflict is normal. Aha. But the resolution is what's surprising. Right. You can't resolve it. Right. You should expect the conflict. Okay. Why? Why should we expect conflict? I, I can't imagine. Because, because, because what? People are different. Difference a good word. It's better than what I was thinking. Yes, go ahead. I mean, the core, the core issue here is they are fulfilling the great commandment to to bring the gospel to the four corners, and the difference is the is the style or the how to do that. Mm -hmm. Both are doing it. Yeah. One just wants to go this way with one guy, and the other wants to go a different way, and they're both doing the same thing. But it's the style as to how they do it. Style and difference. What is the what is what characterizes Barnabas? What is the name that he's given? Son of encouragement. This is a guy who is given to mercy, right? He's a great, merciful, kind, encouraging guy. Paul. I get the impression from his writing that I'm not. I'm not trying to bust on him. But he's a logical guy, right? He's a, he's a bold, I don't care if I get you know, beaten with rods, I'm going to preach this guy. And I'm not saying Barnabas did care, but, but his personality seems to me to be more upfront, aggressive, hard line, hard edges on everything. You ever met a person who has an opinion on every issue ever? He, he, may, have, he may have repented of it afterwards, but he had the history of, he essentially had the Jewish version of a, of a PhD. Yeah. He, he went through however many years of, uh, right. of training. Under, under the pharisaical yeah. leaders of the day. So he was very intelligent, very hard-edged, kind of 
this is the gospel, this is the thing, we're going to do this, we're going to commit to this. And that's, he's perfectly suited for the mission that he needs to do. But personalities are different. There's conflict in the personalities. Some guys are very mercy-oriented. Some are very, you know, bold, out front, never, you know, never back down to a good argument kind of guys. I get the impression Paul is this way and Barnabas is this way. Um, yes, sir. I, I think it, it shows that we never arrive. We don't, yeah. there's not like, because they had the peace and harmony, there's no point where we're like, everything's perfect from now Right. On. There's a continual need to repent and believe. Yeah, well, just to riff off of last week's sermon, exactly, <laughs> that's perfect. That's exactly right. Uh, there's a continual need to repent and believe. We are constantly in flux. There is no happily ever after until the happily ever after. We are in constant reformation, right? Um, mercy guys, I love them. I love Lentigue. I do. That guy epitomizes grace and mercy. I mean, he will bend over backwards for people. Crazy. To his own harm. And I look at him and say, what are you doing? <laughs> right? Until I need it, then I go to Lynn. <laughs> He's a great mercy guy. Imitate him as he imitates Christ in this area. He's great at it. Other guys, uh, I need to be shorn up in boldness, right, on occasion. And so I, I look for hard edges and guys who do that, and there are plenty of them apparently on the Internet uh, these days. Um, so they're, they're, to encourage me to be hard-edged on where's the gospel or the primers, there's great, there's great examples of that. You get those two guys in a room, it can be um, no small dispute. <laughs> And I think that's what's going on here. John Mark had bailed on them. Remember, remember we talked about whenever that happened, that this is you know, laying the groundwork for this. He had bailed on, him, on them for whatever reason. Either he didn't want to make the journey of the mountain, he didn't like being around a bunch of Gentiles all the time, or, or whatever. We don't know. But Paul thought that should have consequences. And Barnabas takes a position, uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You throw Paul's words in his face. You know, that's, the, that's the, the, the mode behind it. But shouldn't we have consequences for those actions? Can we trust this guy? I'm not putting my neck out and have him leave and then have to pick up a bunch of work where I should be doing this kind of stuff. There's this conflict that goes on. And it's not resolved. That's the thing that bothers me. It's not resolved. What happens is Barnabas takes... Mark and goes to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas and goes everywhere else. Paul's goal of visiting all the cities that they had gone to is not met by him. But it is met with Barnabas because Barnabas goes to Cyprus. And we don't know where else he went. He may have gone other places. Luke doesn't tell us. Even though there's this great division between Paul and Barnabas, the, the, um, the positive outcome here is that instead of one mission, you've got two. Right? It's, so, it's amazing how God still uses that. Oh, yeah. So 
they wouldn't have met all three of those, or they wouldn't have gone to all three of those places had right. there not been a split. Right. Through our sin, God's purposes are still accomplished. That's a great comfort to me. As I'm looking back on disputes that I've had that are silly, um, that's a great comfort in that I'm shaped because I don't like the taste of my own foot. I'm shaped not to do that again. Uh, and, and hopefully other things happen that I'm, I'm not aware of. There, some have suggested that there may have been an additional tension with Paul that, 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 and Barnabas that was brought into this as well. Paul talks about during the council at Jerusalem after that happened that um, they were in Antioch and certain men, Peter was with them apparently at the time during this transition, the, the after many days time. Peter comes up and uh, certain men come from James and Peter stops eating with Gentiles. Remember this discussion? Peter stops eating with the Gentiles and Paul says it, it was going on so much that even Barnabas got caught up in their hypocrisy. And Paul gets in Peter's face over it. Again, hard edges, right? Some have theorized, some have, you know, if he's willing to do this to Peter, what do you do to Barnabas? <laughs> you know? Uh, and so some have thought that even though there may have been some reconciliation on that, that, that Paul was going to ask Barnabas to go on this journey, that there still may have been some undercurrent frustration with Barnabas on that, so that it, it was basically a mountain made out of a molehill because of the previous disagreement that we, that's recorded in, in Galatians. I don't know. Even so, whatever happened there, there's a disagreement and it's sharp. Um, and again, we do see later that Paul reconciled with Mark uh, in, in, you know, in, in Philemon and in other places. He, he talks about him as his fellow worker. All right. You, might, you could also see wisdom from both of them. Sure. In separating because they just, at this time, don't work well together. And the point of the gospel isn't their relationship. It's spreading the gospel to the believers. Maybe that more effectively separated. Yeah, I, I, there's wisdom there. You're right. You don't want to. You don't want to create an environment long term that could be um, a reproach to the gospel if if you're not able to work things out. Yeah. I was just going to say I think it's encouraging that neither one of them forsook what they knew they were to do. Right. Because we probably all been in church situations where there has been no small dispute. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people end up going, well, I'm just going to have home church. Well, home church, unfortunately, <laughs> often doesn't happen. Right. Um, and th they just become their own isolated island. Right. And they aren't doing what they're called to do. And at least in this situation, they were faithful to the gospel, even though there were personal issues they needed to... Right. Uh, and I think we're given an uh, account that, it, that both men learned from the situation. Certainly Paul did from, from his later writings. And used it as an example to encourage other brothers, don't do it this way. So, um, all right. I have written in my notes this statement. Sometimes it is easier to show kindness and accommodate strangers than it is friends. <laughs> um one of the things that uh, I got a few minutes. One of the things that I, I say often to uh, my kids: if it's not working here, it's not working. Because it's real easy sometimes to go out in public 
and put on the game face to be nice for the sake of being nice. It's really easy to do that sometimes. We can do it for limited amounts of time. But living with people on a day-to-day basis and viewing others as more important than yourself is hard work. We think of mercy and kindness as kind of the, the softer side of the fruit of the Spirit, the less important one. We'll get to that later stuff, you know. Uh, give me kindness that's rock-ribbed. It's hard work. It's difficult to, to submit to one another as unto Christ. It's hard to do in a family. It's hard to do uh, in, a, in, a, in a marriage. It's hard to do in a group of believers that meet together pretty often on Sunday and other times in the week. You get irritated with people because you got one guy over here who's just so much mercy, and you got another guy over here who's got a, a, a whole opinion roster that's defined and hard-edged. They both love Jesus, and yet they both have to love each other too. That's difficult to do. Give me kindness with rocked ribs. Uh, James was known as a Jew among Jew, among Jews. At his martyrdom, both Josephus and Eusebius noted, Josephus being the, the Jewish historian, Eusebius being the Christian historian, noted the tremendous respect that non-believing Jews gave to James because of his piety and scrupulous observance of the law. And yet he did not require Gentile believers to follow those same standards. It was his culture. It was what he wanted to do. It's his conviction to do as a Jew to live out his Christianity that way. But he didn't put that on Gentile believers. That's a huge issue. And it was not without cost. We see later in Acts 20 uh, or 21 that they ask Paul, hey, you're here in Jerusalem. Can you go down just... Just do us a solid here. Go publicly and be purified at the temple so that the Jews won't uh, slander you and claim that you don't follow the law. Well, Paul didn't have to follow the law to be saved. But they asked him to accommodate so he wouldn't be an obstacle to the Jews who were non-believing in the area because it was causing hardship for the church at Jerusalem. Why invite more hardship when it's not necessary? If it's uh, possible... Live at peace with all men, right? Sometimes it's not possible. But accommodation on non-essentials um, is certainly a, a better solution than making everything a primary issue. Christ demands no less than what He has done in kindness to us. 1 John 3.16 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That doesn't always require uh, burning at the stake or being thrown to lions. That uh, many times requires showing mercy. It feels like a death sometimes, but it's showing mercy, showing kindness, forgiving offenses, being quick to forgive and slow to condemn. Uh, that that is what we're called to do. Any questions, any comments on that? We have a few minutes. I think it really brings it back to where your identity is. Because hmm. a big part of it is 
when you like when you're in a, in community and you know we're called to you know have other or to have others to place others above ourselves right and and um, a lot of times there's humility that's involved and to be honest hum humility does not all, always feel good no you know like no, it's quite humbling. Yeah, it's quite humbling. <laughs> you know, but it's kind of interesting. But through that, but through that process of being humble, it kind of shows you that you know, well, my identity is in Christ. It's right. not in myself, and it's kind of cool. The Spirit kind of just kind of fleshes that out. Yeah, yeah. As 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 humbling as any experience may be, um, as humbling as we think any experience may be, it's never as humble as what Christ did for us. Um, and that's a hard thing to live out. But we're called to do it. Any other, any other questions, comments, fruit to be thrown? All right. Things like this in the Bible are a testament to just its authenticity. Mm. Why would you, why yeah. would anyone... Why would you record this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Things like this, about two cents. Yeah. And, I, and I, I think some people look at the Bible that way. Mm -hmm. It's just without having consumed it and thought about it. Yeah. Or, or gone to go find out about it. Right. Um, it's a struggle. And we, we struggle with it. Good. All right. I'm going to pray. And then we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that has been lavished upon us that while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ to die for the ungodly. Father, we're to reflect you. We're made in your image, and we pray that we do so rightly. We know that we are imperfect. We repent of our sin of um, condemning, judging, assuming bad motives and other people. We pray that we would have hearts of mercy and kindness, that we would grow in that. Um, Thank you for the mercy and kindness that you've shown to us. I pray that you would make much of Jesus in the next service as Philip uh, preaches uh, another passage out of Revelation, that we would see him glorified and be encouraged to be like him, knowing, as John says, that when we see him, we will be made like him, for we will see him as he is. Look forward to that day when we no longer have to wrestle through the balance of mercy and um, and boldness, the, uh, mercy and judgment, mercy and discernment, um, but that they would be perfectly unified in us as they are in Christ. And we thank you for that hope that we have in Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.